Good morning, everybody. It is good to uh, to be here this morning uh, to speak to you. And as Mickey did say, this is Memorial Day weekend. It is a time to remember those who have fallen. Uh, that is the focus of this particular day. And I can name three names right now, two of which were classmates of mine, and I knew really well. Uh, one of which died when we were, when I was in Afghanistan as part of our unit. Um, the first one uh, is Tyler Parton. Tyler Parton was a classmate of mine, passed away. Uh, in Afghanistan, um, and he was probably the one I knew the best uh, as a classmate. He was a, somebody I knew in Officer Christian Fellowship. We sang together uh, in chapel choir, uh, and he passed uh, uh, in 2010, I believe, uh, in Afghanistan. And then the second one is Dan Hyde. Dan Hyde died when, uh, in, in Iraq. Um, he was also a classmate of mine. And uh, I was actually deployed in Iraq at the time that he died or passed away, and he died just south of where I was at. I was at Spiker, which is just outside of uh, Tikrit, Iraq, uh, and Dan Hyde died in Samara uh, when an IED struck his, his vehicle. And then the last one is Terry Varnador, and Terry Varnador is probably the one that hits the hardest because he was in my unit, and I was the, uh, I was the two, the S2, for that unit, which is the intelligence officer, and we're primarily responsible for telling uh, friendly forces where the enemy is and what they're going to do. Uh, and he went out on what's called an area orientation flight, flying a OH-58, which is a Kiowa scout helicopter. Uh, I was taking a, a pilot from a sister battalion uh, just to tour our area. And they went up a valley that they should not have gone up uh, at night. And a, a RPG hit the tail rotor, uh, and he went down. Sorry. So he took control of that, that flight. He was not flying at the time and crashed <clears throat> his side first into the mountain and uh, left his wife a widow and his th- two children, one on the way, fatherless. Good man. So those are some of the names that I remember on this day. Uh, as you can see, I, I brought my own cheerleading squad this morning. It's, a, it's an accident. It's inadvertent. They actually didn't know I was speaking this weekend uh, when they decided to come. But my in-laws... Um, actually, most of them are here, uh, with the exception of Daniel. So, um, this is the third time I think you guys have been here for uh, for me speaking. So, um, they're really gunning hard for that favorite in-law position. But uh, we're I'm thankful that they're here this morning. Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers, uh, to meet, to learn, to open your Word, and to learn from it. Lord, we pray that this morning that would happen. Pray that you would use me, uh, in spite of myself, to speak your words to the people in the audience this morning. Open their hearts, open all our hearts uh, to learn what you would have us to learn this morning. We thank you once again for this opportunity to meet. We love you, we praise you, and you thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. History. History is a, a word I'm, I love, um, <clears throat> partially because uh, I really like history. I was a history major in college, for those of you who didn't know that. Um, American history was what I focused on because I couldn't go back past about 250 years. Uh, Once you start to get into the thousands, which is what European history focuses on, it gets a little confusing and convoluted. But I love history. History is something that uh, I think is a wonderful thing to to study. It's it's enjoyable. I know a lot of people find it dry. I blame the teacher usually uh, for that if you find history dry. Uh, And as a kid, I actually, one of my favorite book series, a young man I should say, was written by a guy named G.A. Henty. Uh, And if... if, uh, you have young men uh, in your family, I'd actually encourage you, and you want them to, to love history, I would encourage 
uh, you to look this guy up. G.A. Henty wrote a lot of books. Uh, they were historical fiction. So he weaved a, a fictional character, young man, uh, into a real historical story. And I learned a lot. I learned about William Wallace. I learned about King Alfred fighting the Danes. Uh, I learned about uh, Agincourt. I learned about the French Revolution. Uh, he wrote a lot of books focusing on his history. So history, I think, is such a wonderful thing. And another way to say history, the word history, and I have no idea if this is actually part of the history, for lack of a better term, of the word history, uh, but it's his story. And that his being God, obviously. So God created the world, obviously, and, and, and his, his working, his plan uh, throughout history. And oftentimes we don't see it, especially when you read the history books. Uh, it's not explicitly stated. But uh, his plan is being worked. For instance, who knew that when a, uh, Caesar Augustus would decide that he wanted to count the people in his, in his kingdom, uh, that he would actually cause the movement of two people in Israel so that the Savior of the world would be born where it was prophesied to be born. So when we look at history, we look at just the census, and we say, well, you know, Roman emperor wanted to know how many people were in his empire. But in reality, God used that or caused that so that he could move two people to Bethlehem. And I think that, again, reading history, you don't often see that. But when you read the Bible, the Bible gives us a unique view on history, especially when you look at the historical books of the Bible, because it explicitly tells you or states how God's plan is being worked. You can see it. You can see the providential hand of God throughout history as he moves uh, people, as he, as he enacts his will. And Joseph's life, which is, for those of you who don't know, realize, you're actually, uh, for those of you who are visiting, you're, you're, you're uh, entering at uh, part of a, uh, a series on, on the life of Joseph. And his life doesn't differ uh, from that. And really, Joseph's story doesn't just begin with Joseph, does it? It's the story of the Israelite people, the Israelite nation, God's chosen people. And you have to go back to Abraham for that. So with Abraham, who was Abraham? Abraham was uh, the one that God spoke to in concerning his promise. He came to Abraham uh, and, and promised that he would make his progeny or his seed a great nation. By his seed, all, all, all people would be blessed. And we know now, looking, being able to look back at the course of history in the Bible, that that's, Jesus was the the fulfillment of that. But again, a great nation. He would make him a great nation, his people a great nation. And at the time, he was childless. So that probably seemed a little silly to him. Uh, and he was also old. And so it was uh, physically, at least he felt, impossible for him to have children. And then along comes Isaac. Uh, in Abraham's old age and Sarah's old age. Being the promised and impossible, physically at least, uh, one. And Isaac had two sons. Esau and Jacob, and usually you say Jacob and Esau, right? It's interesting because Jacob was the secondborn. And typically the firstborn is the one that inherits, and through him that line is continued. That didn't happen, did it? And why? Because Esau was, was his father Isaac's favorite son, in addition to being his firstborn. But Jacob, a little bit of a deceiver here, plotted. The plotter, plotting. Uh, improbable one, so he was the secondborn son that took the birthright, and through him... The seed continued, uh, the line continued. Jacob had 12 sons uh, through four different women. And then we get to Joseph. So the 12 sons, obviously, are the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's part of, part of where you continue to move on. But Joseph, Joseph is who we're studying. And who was Joseph? Joseph was the firstborn son of Rachel, uh, I believe the 11th son total of, of Jacob. But the firstborn son of Rachel. And Rachel was, uh, obviously, as we know, uh, Jacob's favorite that was who he originally wanted uh, when he worked seven years for Laban. And when he didn't get Rachel, he worked an additional seven years for her. 
and she was barren for a good portion of their marriage. And then when she did actually conceive, Joseph came along. And so Joseph was a favored son, which, which did cause problems. And then you look at the beginning of the Israelite nation, you look at their movement as well. We, we started in Ur, that's where Abraham was called. Or the Chaldeans moved into the, the Canaanite region, and there was obviously movement throughout that. But then you see the Israelite nation, as we look back, back in history, move to Egypt. And then from Egypt, we know, as the story progresses, they move back to Canaan, which is the promised land. And it takes them a few years uh, to get there. So Egypt is what we're focusing on, the movement to Egypt today. And what brought the, the people of, of Israel to Egypt in reading the story? Why did they have to move? There was a famine in the land, right? And that's actually an interesting study in and of itself. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on, on famines, but famine is something that God uses many, many times. First of all, famine is uh, part of the God's judgment. If you look in, especially Revelation, you'll see that. Famine is mentioned as part of the tribulation. Uh, it's going to be a, a tool to wipe out portions of the earth. And, and so it is part of God's judgment on the earth. And you'll see that throughout the Old Testament as well. God uses that as, as part of his judgment. Another thing about famine, famine is really part of the curse, uh, curse of, of nature, if you look at it. Um, so when God created the earth, he created it perfectly, correct? There was no, no need for drought. Uh, the, water, the water was sufficient to to take care of the earth, uh, and, and then the curse came along when man sinned and sin entered the world. And then the flood came, which was another part of that. And, and so now suddenly you have rain, and the need for rain, or potentially the lack of rain. So the curse really brought about famine through drought. And in this particular instance, that's what uh, happened. And so we had a, a seven years of, of drought, which brought about famine. The other thing that God uses famine for, and you can see it throughout history, is to move people. Uh, he moved Abraham. Uh, Isaac, I believe, he also moved through famine. Uh, and then you see Jacob and his family being moved to, to, uh, to Egypt. So the Lord uses famine to, to enact his will. And then who paved the way for, uh, for Jacob and his family to move? Joseph. And God, really, but, but he used Joseph uh, to pave the way. And Joseph endured a lot to get to this point, didn't he? Uh, his life was really kind of a feast or famine life. He, he had a lot of mountaintop moments and a lot of valley moments. He started off as the favorite son of a wealthy man, and he was the favorite. His brothers knew it. He got a coat of many colors. Uh, he was considered maybe by them a little bit of a tattletale or goody two-shoes. But they knew that Rachel was their father's favorite, and Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel. And so there was a little bit of enmity there, but he was the favorite son, and he was treated as such. And then he became a slave through, through the circumstances we've studied um, in pa past, uh, past Sundays. He became a slave. And when he came, came to Egypt, um, when the Ishmaelites brought him to Egypt, he was sold. Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard, uh, and all that he did prospered. And Potiphar saw that, and so he continued to give him more and more and more until he became basically the number two guy in his house had control over everything, and probably was living pretty well, being faithful. And then something happened, and we studied that in the past as well, and he was sentenced to prison. He became a sentenced prisoner in Pharaoh's dungeon, and I'd imagine that probably wasn't very pleasant, a very pleasant time. And at the time, he was probably bitter about it. Uh, it's a very human reaction to his circumstances, but again, still remained faithful. And at the time, probably didn't see, this is 
This is God's will. He's moving me somewhere. And I have to be in prison so that I meet two people, interpret their dreams, and those two people happen to be very close to Pharaoh. And when one of them comes back to Pharaoh and Pharaoh has a dream, that person is there to say, well, hey, I know somebody that can interpret dreams. And, oh, by the way, he's pretty accurate because exactly what he said would happen happened to me. And that brought Pharaoh into, or excuse me, Joseph into the, the sphere of Pharaoh to interpret that dream. Uh, and Joseph became the second most powerful person in Egypt at the time. He was a governor, uh, often called the vizier of, of, of Pharaoh. And so at this point, we find ourselves at the start of where I'm going to be covering, uh, which is Genesis chapters 42 through 44. You can turn there now if you'd like. But now we find ourselves at the start of that part of the story where Joseph is in charge. Uh, We've had the seven years of plenty. They've stored up uh, food for uh, the people of of Egypt as well as really the neighboring or surrounding areas. So they, they capitalized on the years of plenty. And throughout his life, you can't, you can't deny that the providential hand of God was there leading him. And he couldn't deny it either. Looking back, I think, realizing that God brought me to this place at this time specifically for this purpose. And you could say at this, where Joseph is now in this part of the story is exactly where God wanted him to be. This was the reason I think he was born. This is the reason I think God moved him to these places. This was his life's purpose. Uh, was was twofold, um, I believe. One was to, uh, to save a good portion of the world. Uh, because if that famine had not been prepared for, I think a lot of Egypt and Canaan would have died. So that's the first part. But more importantly, to enact his will and purpose and to bring God's people to Egypt. Uh, and I think there's actually two parts to that as well. The first part is a continuation of prophecy. Um, I will make the descendants of Abraham a great people. Um, And the second part of that is a fulfillment of prophecy that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 15, verse 13. They had to come under slavery uh, by a people. And so bringing them to Egypt in such a a position, such a time, and such a place, and under the right conditions that they would stay, wouldn't just come buy food and leave, but would actually come and move to Egypt. Uh, Prophecy was being fulfilled, and again, you see the hand of God in that. And we know the story. They did prosper. They, were, they moved to Goshen. I think at the time that they moved, Jacob's family was about 75 people. And they prospered. And we know that they became so prosperous in the land of Goshen that the Egyptians eventually feared them and enslaved them. And when they did eventually move back to Canaan to take the promised land, they were a nation. They were a great nation of thousands, of tens of thousands, I believe of hundreds of thousands if you look at the numbers. So that was important. We're going to read Genesis 42 through 44. I'm going to read it. Uh, I time myself. It should take me the rest of the the period, and we'll we'll just open for questions at the end. Uh, Genesis 42. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. 
So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more, which is ironic. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them for the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened, as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way which you go, in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. 
And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your other brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the present and Benjamin and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and seize us to make our slaves with our donkeys. When they drew near to that steward of Joseph's house, They talked to him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so we have brought it back in our hand. And we have brought down our money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant our father is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep, and he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians and they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth and the men looked in astonishment at one another then he took servings to them from before him but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs so they drank and were merry with him chapter 44 and he commanded the steward of the house saying fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph has spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city, and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, 
Follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever one or of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now let it be according to your words, He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you all shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is it that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants, but here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it for me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, you are go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word to your Lord's hearing, or in your Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked my servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. And we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we can go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me. And I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I came to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, or when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen. When he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up with my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Pin your ears back. We've still got a little ways to go. Three chapters. Now, before I get into what I wanted to talk about, I did want to mention a couple of things that I saw here. Uh, one, we see the fulfillment of Joseph's dream, which I think is very important, actually, uh, to Joseph, uh, most of all. I think that was validation that, that God was with him and that God was actually planning this the entire time, and he actually saw the hand of God. So when when his brothers came back with Benjamin, and there were 11 of them. If you remember back in Genesis 37, when Joseph originally had the dream, the first dream was what? 
Right, and it was 11 sheaves of wheat, specifically his brothers, and it had to be 11. And when they came back and they bowed down before him as the Lord of the land, Joseph had to have remembered. In fact, they had talked about it originally when they first came without Benjamin, that he did remember that dream. But that's validation for Joseph, I think. When he was 17 years old, God gave him this dream. I'd imagine maybe he questioned it throughout the entire time. Like, was that really, God, was that really from God? Did it, was it really a dream? Should I have told my brothers? But then he saw that 20 years ago, and this was about 20 years after that happened, maybe 22, God really was leading him to this point in this place in his life where he would be in a position that his brothers, his 11 brothers, would bow down before him. So I think that's validation for Joseph, and that happened in this portion. The second thing I noticed was the change that came about in Judah, his brother Judah. So Judah was the one that, what, sold him into slavery, right? That was the one, he's the one that came up with the idea. Uh, And so Judah, uh, probably, as far as Joseph was concerned, was not probably his favorite half-brother, um, and then we, 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 didn't, we didn't go through chapter 38, but, but I think most of you probably know the story of Judah and Tamar. Uh, and, and so Judah was a little bit of a scoundrel uh, in many respects, or at least that's the way that, that he's portrayed. And, and then yet you see in these portions of these chapters right here that a change has come about. Uh, because when Judah sold his brother into slavery, I think he had to have known, maybe not to the degree, but he had to have known that would have torn his father up. And he didn't care because he was a young, angry man, angry at his father for playing favorites. And now he becomes surety for Benjamin, who's the younger son of the man that he sold into slavery or that he came up with the idea of um, because he wanted to protect his father and protect his brother. And he went so far at the end of the chapter as saying, take me, make me your slave. I'll be your slave for the rest of your life if you let Benjamin go. I think that's significant. There was a change there. And then the last uh, thing is uh, I think you see some some parallels uh, to Jesus uh, in the life of Joseph especially here, and, and I think if you look at the, the, the timeline or the history of it here, uh, you'll see some types of Christ here, or some, some, some parallels to him. So Joseph's brothers despised him. Uh, they abused him. When they sold him, they thought he was dead, or at least for all intents and purposes for them, he was dead. And yet he returned. And we don't see the return in these, these chapters. So I'm getting a little ahead, and Matt's not here for me to apologize to for his portion of the message. But he did um, return from the dead, and he was a source of life for the world at the time, or at least the known world, the Egypt, Canaan, uh, and especially his brothers. And he brought his family to a good land. He was part of that uh, until they become slaves. So that part isn't obviously there. But there, was some, there are some parallels, I believe, in the life of Joseph. And then how he dealt with his brothers is also a parallel in this portion, because I think Jesus also deals with the Israelites and the Jews in Revelation during the tribulation in a similar manner. So there's things I didn't want to go into specifically, but did want to mention. So why did Joseph do all this? Why, why, did, he, why did he test his brothers? And you have to admit they were pretty clever tests if you really look at, at what he did. And every step of the way was very intentional uh, and, and designed to set his brothers up. And give them every opportunity to fail. Well, so why did he do that? And why didn't he just reveal himself immediately? Or seek retribution? Or both? I think Shadi was testing them. He wanted to see if their attitude was going to change. They didn't betray him. Um, you know, and they were his brothers. They, he had to prove it uh, to have changed. I think that was the primary reason. Yeah. I think also, I mean, Joseph was like a godly person. Right. And I think he, you know, instead of getting revenge and things like that, but I mean, I think this is a godly move on his part to, to really 
I agree, and I actually, so I go through this, I think there were, there were three, really four reasons, but three reasons that he did this, and I'm going to draw a few parallels to, to salvation, really, and the plan to salvation, I think is in, in many respects found in this. But the first part that Joseph wanted to see, first of all, first and foremost, is whether or not his brothers regretted their actions, whether there was remorse on what they did. If they had changed, that's the second part. But the first part is, do you regret what you did to me? Do you regret what you did to your brother. Um, and really, we're, we're, I think the purpose of that was, are, are they worthy of, of reunion? Are they worthy of forgiveness or redemption? Because if there was no remorse, if there was no change in attitude, um, then, they, then maybe they weren't worthy of forgiveness, uh, at least in a, from a human perspective. The parallel to today, I believe, is that realization is a, of sin uh, is the first step to salvation or first step for salvation. You have to understand, first of all, that you are a sinner. And there, there is genuine remorse, I believe, when you really understand the gravity of what you have done. Uh, and if you want to look at, at, at um, a passage of Scripture that I think shows somebody who is remorseful, that's from a little bit different perspective than necessarily someone who first finds out that they are a sinner. Uh, but read Psalm 51. Uh, that's when David, David um, shows remorse for his sin with Bathsheba and and. There's true remorse in that, that passage of Scripture. Have mercy on me, O well, God, a sinner. He understands. And he's sorry uh, for what he did. And the second one is to see if they repented of their actions. So not only was there remorse there, but there is a change. And another way, of, uh, I think, of, of, of stating what uh, re- repentance is, and it is first, obviously, recognition of and then turning away from, but is, is a complete 180. Uh, there's a military movement that's called an about face. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that. But when you first learn drill and ceremony, you learn right face, left face, those types of things. One of the more difficult ones to initially teach and also learn is an about face. And I'm actually going to, for those of you who can see, I apologize if you can, I'm going to demonstrate. So when you do a left face or a right face, it's just a pivot, and you do this. It's actually a relatively easy maneuver, and then you're supposed to put your heels together again. But an about face, when you first learn an about face, and I'm going to turn sideways when you do so, so you're standing in this position. You have to be able to put your foot in the right spot to turn so that when you turn around, your feet are in the exact same position and your heels are touching. When you're first learning that position, obviously if you go too far, you're not going to be in the right spot. Your feet are going to be crossed. Or if you go too far, you're going to trip. It's actually pretty comical to watch people first learn how to do that. But what an about face is, practically speaking, is you turn away from something. So I'm facing this way. And I do a literal about face, a 180 degree turn. I'm turning away from one thing and I'm turning toward either someone or something on the other side. It's a complete change in direction. I'm not turning right or left and still kind of facing one way. I'm completely changing the way I'm going. That is, I think, what repentance truly is. It's a complete change. In parallel to today, repentance leads to salvation. We know that. So, first of all, you have remorse, then you repent. I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to stop following the world. I'm going to stop going after the world and its pleasures. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to turn to him, and I'm going to change, and I'm going to go towards him. I'm going to turn really quickly to uh, 2 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but um, you're welcome to, obviously. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
verses 9 through 10, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10a. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, not that you're remorseful, but that your sorrow led to repentance. I think one follows the other. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. So one leads to the other. Another thing about repentance is it's the call of the Lord. Two passages of scripture, Joel chapter 2 verse 12. Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. Turn away from something and turn to me with all your heart. Amos chapter 5 verse 4 says this. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Jesus himself said that was his calling. Mark chapter 9, 13. Excuse me, Matthew 9, 13, Mark chapter 2, verse 17, and Luke 5, 32. It was to call sinners to repentance. That's what his, his calling was. And it's God's desire that all should come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The third part, the third reason I believe that Joseph did this was to see if his brothers returned as promised. And really, what is that? It's evidence or action that accompanies that repentance. So not only did they verbally say something in his presence, if you remember correctly in that passage we read, they were talking about what they did to him in front of him. And he understood them. So he, he, he got the, the, the remorse part. He saw even maybe the repentance. But w- would they actually do the right thing now? Was there an actual change in action or, or, or doing? In the parallel to today, James, James talked about this in chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. He didn't mean that that's part of salvation. That's not a requirement for salvation. But it is evidence of true saving faith, that there is a change and there is, there is action that accompanies what you're saying. I found it interesting when I was reading this portion and talking about repentance itself. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist was speaking to the people and he said this, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. God could enact his will regardless of what the brothers of Joseph did in this situation. But he wanted to see if there was, again, repentance and action that accompanied that. Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man. And that blessed man is like a tree planted by rivers of water who yields its fruit in its season. There's fruit that accompanies that. Um, so there, there is evidence of, of that. And that's what, something Joseph was looking for. And again, if you look at the tests that were relatively... They were clever. He gave them opportunities to leave Simeon behind, say, forget it, we're going to leave another brother behind, or we're going to save ourselves. He gave them an opportunity to keep the silver. Hey, we're going to, we're going to make a little money on this venture. Uh, he gave them the opportunity to leave Benjamin. They could have. Um, so there was a lot of tests that he gave them the opportunity to fail on, and they didn't. And then what's the last, the end result of that? And I'm getting into Matt's chapter here, but I'm going to go into it just a little bit because that's the last point. There's reunion there at the very beginning of chapter 45. And it's a joyful reunion. And the parallel to today, that's the, that's the reconciliation to God through Christ that, that Christians have. And ultimately the reward of eternal life in heaven with him. That is the salvation story. And I think it's, it's pretty well portrayed in, in this these few chapters here, um, if you dig a little bit deeper. 
So some of the takeaways that I got from here, uh, this particular passage uh, as I close. One is that God desires us, us to be forgiving. I think that Joseph showed that in the way he dealt with his brothers, and I think God does desire us because, in fact, we ourselves are forgiven. We're forgiven of much if we're honest with ourselves, and I think God desires that in, in us, uh, and he desired it in Joseph, and Joseph illustrated that. He also demands that we be faithful. Joseph was faithful throughout this entire time to God. Uh, he had many opportunities himself to fall, and he didn't. Or at least it's not recorded uh, that he did. And that faithfulness is rewarded, although it's not always rewarded the way we think we should be rewarded. Sometimes you're rewarded with more responsibility. I don't know if the life of the vizier of Egypt was, was a cake job. That was probably difficult. Um, but that was a reward for his faithfulness as he moved forward. And he was in such a position as to essentially take care of his family in that position. So there was reward in that. And I think God also destines us to be fruitful. And not fruitful in the sense that we're all going to be rich. We're all going to have an easy life and everything's going to be good and hunky-dory. I think he he destines our lives as long as we're faithful um, and and loving and, and seek um, to, to spread the good news. He, he is, does destine us to be fruitful in that faithfulness, I believe. Um, so those are the takeaways I have. I don't, unfortunately, really have a lot of time to, to open it up for questions, so I'm going to close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, for your grace, for your love. We thank you for the Bible and the, the fact that we have evidence of your providence, your plan being enacted, Lord. And, and we thank you so much for the assurance that that salvation that you give us gives us, as well as the word of God, Lord. It is living and powerful, and we thank you so much for the opportunity we had this morning to open it, to read it, uh, to study it. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would take some lessons from the life of Joseph uh, and how he dealt with his brothers this morning. We love you, we praise you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.